Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. All right, you ready to rock and roll? Here we go for um, reading God's word. You know, um, this, uh, this book, I'm, I'm uh, gonna plow through it this summer. I've gotten started. It's called Dominion. You wanna read a good read? Uh, I don't think you're gonna get through it at the beach. Um, but uh, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World, it's pretty interesting because it's written by a non-Christian historian and he recognizes that Christianity is the most influential force, uh, particularly in the Western world. So much of what people believe who are not Christians, they might be wild liberals, everything else that our society is built on, um, Christianity, all written by a non-Christian. Well, this is something he says uh, in this book. Tom Holland says it. How was it that a cult inspired by the execution of an obscure criminal in a long vanished empire came to exercise such a transformative and enduring influence on the world? Uh, That's the question we're seeking to answer as we study Acts. And what we're finding is, is the answer is, is that obscure criminal who got hung on a tree and executed, resurrected from the dead. That's what changed the entire world. And eyewitnesses of that resurrected Jesus flooded out of Jerusalem, were driven out of Jerusalem in many cases, and they went into every village and every place with a message. What did they call that message? The gospel, the good news, something happened. Christianity isn't an idea. It's not a teaching. It's not a theory. It's not a theology. It's an announcement. Something happened. God invaded the world. Um, Jesus resurrected from the dead. One of the most uh, famous of those people who flooded out and went to the world was named Paul, right? Saul of Tarsus. And what I'm about to read to you is his first recorded sermon. Imagine if you could go on YouTube and read Paul's, and hear Paul's first sermon. Well, they weren't filming then, but uh, we've got it right in the book. So stand if you're able. And uh, I'm starting in chapter 13. Um, it is a lengthy passage. I apologize uh, for having you stand for all of that, but I think we'll make it. Um, starting in uh, Acts 13, if you have a Bible, starting in the 14th verse. Now on the Sabbath day, Paul and Barnabas are in, well, it's modern day Turkey. Then it was considered, the region was called Pisidia and a city named Antioch. And on the Sabbath day there, they went to the synagogue. They're Jewish. They went to the synagogue and they sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, share it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, this is what he said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people, Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of Egypt. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in Canaan, he gave them this land as an inheritance All this took about 450 years. After that, he gave them judges until Samuel, 
the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John the Baptist had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, And those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, they did not recognize him nor understand the utterance of the prophets which are read every Sabbath and fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us and their children by raising Jesus. In verse 35 he says, Therefore, in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. But this didn't apply to David. For after David served the purpose of God in his own generation and fell asleep, he was laid with his fathers and his body saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This is the reading of God's holy infallible and inspired word. God, when Paul uttered these words 2,000 years ago, you by your Holy Spirit um, changed that community. Lord, do it here too, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I'm not actually done with reading this passage. There's more to go. Um, but uh, I'm going to read that in a, in a few minutes. Um, So this week on the calendar is um, perhaps the most significant week on the calendar in uh, in my life. So many events in my life uh, all are jammed into this one um, week. I have um, two sons. They were both born on this week, uh, June 11th and June 18th. Um, I have a grandson that was born on um, this week. my father was born on this week. On June the 13th, 1920, my father was born. It was a week of, uh, of so many um, births. It was also a week of a tragic death. My brother Steve, my oldest brother, my hero as a child, died on June 13th, my father's birthday in 1986, three years into being pastor of this um, church. A very sorrowful occasion. Um, suddenly and unexpectedly, he died. This is also um, Father's Day every 
week, which I consider the highest um, privilege of my life, um, to have children, to have had the, the joy and delight of partnering with my wife and in, um, in raising children. Uh, I like being a pastor, but I like being a father a lot more and uh, feel that that's, uh, that's ultimately what I'll answer to God uh, to first uh, in my life. Um, but all that being said, vocationally, this is also uh, the most important um, week in my life because it was on June 18th, uh, Saturday, in 1983 that my wife and I drove into this community, a U-Haul truck. Um, We stayed in somebody's uh, house um, and the next morning went to Crystal River Middle School Auditorium where for the first time I was the pastor of, uh, there were about 15 people um, that were at that um, service um, on June the 19th, which is uh, exactly 39 years ago this very day. Um, And, uh, you know, we came asking the question, right? Um, When we moved to this um, community, uh, what happens when the gospel comes to town? Will it make a difference? Will a church be created? Believe me, I didn't know. I didn't know if anybody would ever show up. There were some weekends. I remember a weekend where nobody did. and my poor wife, I preached anyway. Um, <laughs> you know, what happens when the gospel comes to town? Um, will people be converted? Will the culture be impacted? How will it change the pastor? Will it be received gladly or will be there be um, disinterest, even, even opposition? I mean, what happens when the gospel comes to town. Some will be steadfast in their disinterest. Listen, there's people I've known for 39 years in this town and they're not converted yet. And I may have prayed with them or tried to reach out for them. Um, For some um, will be steadfast in their disinterest, but others, um, you'll just be amazed to watch um, when they embrace the gospel and the gospel embraces them, it changes everything. In the earliest days of our church, a young single mom walked in our um, church. She had her little daughter in tow, and um, she was a businesswoman in our community. Um, She was not converted. She met Jesus in the church. Um, She became our first female uh, ministry staff person in the church. She was uh, paved the way for Jessica's and others to follow. she um, uh, put her daughter in our school in the first class we ever had in our um, school. She labored in this church for a number of years. Then she had the nerve to marry our um, uh, worship director. And uh, they moved to St. Louis where they've continued for another 15 plus years in ministry uh, to a church there. Her daughter um, um, went to Covenant College, went to Covenant Seminary. Uh, Her daughter um, is married to a PCA pastor now, raising two children of her own um, in the faith. Uh, This is what happens when the gospel comes um, to town. It it changes the trajectory of people's lives um, forever. That's what happened 2,000 years ago in Antioch in modern day Turkey. Let's see what's gonna happen today, you ready? Take your sermon outline if you have it. And we're going to just talk about two things. What was the message that Paul gave 2,000 years ago and what was the impact of that um, message? So then it was the Sabbath day in, uh, in Antioch 
And uh, Paul made his way with Barnabas to the synagogue. There the service would have begun with the the Shkimah. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. Um, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. They would have had um, prayers. They would have had um, reading from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They would have had uh, reading from the prophets. Um, There would have been preaching. They would have had two messages, so quit your complaining. Um, and, um, And then recognizing that a visitor was in their midst and that he was a rabbi, maybe Paul's dress gave that away, uh, they would invite, have invited the visiting rabbi to come up and speak. Little did they know what they were doing, right? Um, so Paul gets up and he basically gives them a panoramic view of God's saving work through the nation of Israel from the very beginning, right? Um, and what I want you to recognize, first of all, in, um, in Paul's message is the, the initiative of God. That's his message is that God's saving work towards Israel has always been about grace, right? God has done it. God took the initiative. God has pursued um, this people. And that's how he starts. He says, you know, God um, made you a people and he made you great in the land of Egypt. And then he took you out of Egypt. And then uh, he didn't kill you in the wilderness, even though he wanted to. (laughs) He put up with you um, as complaining and conniving and ungrateful as you were. And on it goes, you know, that um, in this passage, 23 times it says, God chose, God led, God gave, God put up with. God is the subject of almost every verb in this passage. God chooses to bestow, I mean, God takes the initiative. We shouldn't be surprised, right? Why is there a world? God made it. You didn't have anything to do with that choice, did you? You didn't have anything to do with your existence. God made you. God takes the initiative. Why is there salvation? Because what happened with Adam and Eve when they rebel against God? He doesn't blow them away. He goes and finds them. He seeks them. He pursues them. That's the opposite of every world religion. Every world religion says you go get God. You go find God. Then you have to keep the feast days and the rules and the obligations and the pilgrimages. And maybe if you do it well enough, then you'll have the favor of God. Here we have something completely different in the world. Here's a God who says, I know you. I've known you before the world began. And I want you and I'm pursuing you. You don't know me. In fact, what do we learn about Israel? At every point, they resist the love of God. At every point, they turn away from his favor. At every point, they push God away. They build golden calves in the wilderness. God liberates them from Egypt. That's all right, they're not happy. They say, we want to go back to Egypt. 430 years of slavery, they say, they had better food in Egypt. We got this bread that falls from the sky. It's dull. Our palates want more. We'll take slavery over you, God. This is, this is the history of this people. And God loves them anyway. And God pursues them Anyway, God's favor has never been earned, right? And this recital, recitation of God's deeds comes to its climax in the provision of a savior, Jesus, right? He describes in this passage, Paul says, John the Baptist recognized Jesus as the deliverer. The leaders in Jerusalem of the synagogue there did not recognize him. And though he was innocent, they had Pilate execute him. He was taken from the tree. He was laid in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead and he has appeared many times alive. There are now scores of witnesses. And ultimately he concludes with verse 32. 
33, and we bring you the what? What's another word for good news? And we bring you the gospel. This is what Paul preached then is what we preach here every week, all the time. The gospel, the saving, loving initiative of God that pursues us, finds us, and makes us his. It hasn't changed. The message hasn't changed in 2,000 years. What's my job? My job is to do what Paul um, did 2,000 years ago. Show up and give you the message that there is a God who loves you, knows you, and is pursuing you. Oh, it's beautiful. This is the beautiful gospel. So I read the story of this young woman, Kim Tate, um, this week. She's, this is her story. It's one of my most visited memories, she says, as a little girl sitting on the edge of my bed, face dangled toward the window, eyes peeled for my daddy. My heart would race as a new set of headlights approached. Maybe that's him. Before sinking as the car passed into the distance. Still, I'd hold on to hope. From the time my parents divorced, when I was four, I looked forward to these planned outings with my dad. Where is he? Did he forget about me? Daddy was always out and about. All I could do was wait, even as daylight turned to dusk and dusk to night. Tears would gather as I realized he wasn't coming again. More than once I thought, I must not really matter. He must not really love me. I was longing for a relationship with my father. She is describing every human heart because we're cut off from God by our rebellion and sin. There is an innate longing inside of us, a father longing. And you know what, the, what Paul's telling the people of Antioch? That father you want, he wants you more than you want him. He's pursuing you. That's why he sent me and Barnabas here to deliver this message to you. That's my message to you today, is that God wants you more than you want him. God loves you more than you'll ever love him. And God's pursuing you. And you might think you just came to church today because it's Father's Day and I gotta be with the old man. You know, it's better than giving him a gift, it's cheaper. Um, no, you know, actually you're here because God wanted you here because God wanted you to hear what I just said. That there's somebody in this world that knows you. There is a father. This father will never disappoint you. That's it. This is a father who takes initiative. The second thing you see in this passage is this Christianity, this gospel that Paul preaches is credible. It's factual. He doesn't just say, here's the deal. Uh, Jesus, there, there, there's God sent his son he put on human flesh, he died, he resurrected from the dead, you just have to believe it, take it by faith. That's not what he says. Paul um, argues from what? The resurrection of Jesus. Three times he quotes their scripture. Three times. Their most holy book that they revered more than anything else, the Old Testament. He quotes from the Old Testament. He teaches Jesus from their scriptures. Isn't that something? Then he also quotes John the Baptist. He was a hero to the Jewish people. He uses authorities and sources that they believe that matter to them. Their scriptures, John the Baptist. And then he, when he says Jesus resurrected from the dead, he said, if you find that unbelievable, go check it out because there's eyewitnesses who have seen him and there's a lot of them. And you can go ask, um, you, you, you check it out, right? The gospel is credible and uh, factual. You know, here's the thing about Christianity. You may not like it. You may not want to believe it. 
you might um, hate it, in fact. You might, some of the teaching of Christianity in, in the church and church people, you might have a disdain for all of that. But you know what? Christianity isn't something, it isn't about whether you like it or not. It's not a theory. It's not a, a it's fact. Facts are nasty little things, right? Whether you like them or not, facts are facts. That's why I like golf more than figure skating, right? When you watch the Winter Olympics and some little pixie goes out there and does her little thing all over the ice, and then, um, and if it's a Russian and you're watching, and totally unbiased as Americans, and you're watching a Russian girl falls three times, smacks her face in the ice, bleeding down the side of her face, and the Russian judge says 10, perfect 10, best performance I've ever seen. It's just judges, it's bias, it's what do you like, it's your opinion, right? And everybody's got a different opinion. Um, in golf, you know, it doesn't matter whether you like the golfer or not. It doesn't matter, you know, so-and-so, his clothes, his outfit are to die for on the golf course. That's who won as far as I'm concerned. Did you see his outfit? Did you see his clothes? He's got the cutest wife too. Um, see, it doesn't make any difference whether you like him or not. Who has the least strokes? They win, right? Every time you swing that club, it counts. Facts are nasty little things. Guess what? Nobody knew that more than the Apostle Paul because nobody hated Christianity more than he did. Saul of Tarsus despised Jesus. He despised the Christians. He despised the idea that the temple was no more, that atonement wasn't needed, blood sacrifice was over. And Paul, Saul of Tarsus set out to give his life killing Christians. But then something to happen to him, a nasty little fact intervened in his life. What was that? He met the risen Jesus. See, I gotta say to you, you'd say, but I hate Christianity. But I hate Christians. Sorry. Christianity rests on the resurrection of Jesus. It's a fact. It really doesn't matter how you feel about it. With me? So, this is a God who pursues us. This is a... Um, this is truth. This message is authenticated um, truth. And, and last to say is the gospel is what we need, right? We need what Christ's resurrection accomplished, which is life after death. Are you kidding? You don't think we need life after death? Have you looked at the average age in Citrus County? I don't want to bring a bad word, uh, cause you to lay awake at night. There are a lot of old people live here, Right. And you know, the older you get every year you pile on, guess what gets sweeter and sweeter? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The profession that there is life after death, right? Now the crazy thing is everybody in our culture professes to believe that when somebody they love dies, right? Everybody talks about, oh, they're in a better place. Oh, it's awesome. Oh, you know. Um, but listen, um, it just shows that there's this deep longing in the human heart. The human heart says, it is not right for us to die and that's it. That's not right. And so many through history have died for such a short period of time. That's not right. And Christ's resurrection means he's accomplished life after death for all who belong to him. So the gospel is what our hearts long for. And not only that, because of his death on the cross, he has accomplished reconciliation with God. He's in a synagogue and he tells them the law of Moses will never make you right with God. Right? He said, if you want to be justified with God, it's through the work of Jesus. This is mind-blowing to them, right? To the Jewish community. 
He died on a tree, which means he's cursed of God. Exactly, that's the point. Jesus was cursed of God. The Jews are sitting there thinking, how could someone cursed of God be the Messiah? But that's the whole point. He's cursed of God instead of us. He's our substitute. And you know what happens then? Um, You can be reconciled to God. Utter forgiveness, total acquittal for our rebellion, acceptance into the family. You know, a judge can can say to a, a, a horrific criminal, not guilty, and the criminal walks and goes his own way. But this is not what happens here. Not only are we not guilty, we're adopted. The judge takes us into his family. The judge judge hugs us and takes us home. That's what it means to become a Christian. We have a dad. We have God. We have his love. Listen, we have lived in the most materially prosperous culture the world has ever known in this country, and we have more depression and more suicide, uh, more antidepressants, um, because our material prosperity won't satisfy the deep hunger of the human heart. It just won't. We need the dad we were created to have. So I read this week the story of Beckett Cook. Beckett Cook was a fashion designer, uh, worked in the movies, worked in the industry, worked with, you know, like Madonna and Paris Hilton, the much accomplished Paris Hilton, uh, Natalie Portman, Prince. He was, his work was featured in Vogue and other Harper's Bazaar. And um, so he lives in Hollywood. Uh, he's about 35 years old. He is at the, the apex of his career. He's won every award, every recognition. He's wealthy. Uh, he's good looking. He also happens to be gay. And um, he's sitting there um, at a coffee shop, Intelligentsia, it's called, in Los Angeles. And there's a group of young men sitting in a circle at another table reading their Bibles. And it intrigues him. And he asks them what they're reading. And they say, and he He says, what do you believe about homosexuality? And they answered very honestly. He kind of admired that. Um, He asked if they went to church and they um, told him the church they went to. So he went the next day and he met Jesus. Went forward, he was converted. And uh, he says, the truth though is it wasn't really that fast. He said six months earlier, he was in a hotel room in Paris. He had just won the highest award in his field. Um, He had everything. He had money, success, everything. When he won that award, he went back to his hotel room and he said, there's got to be more to life than this. Every accolade the world has offered leaves me unsatisfied. And uh, the day he walked into that church, his life has radically changed. In fact, he's been to seminary. Um, He um, still struggles with same-sex attraction, but he is a celibate and a follower of Jesus uh, to this day. Listen, I want to tell you something. What you have been so feverishly yearning for is father love. Your longing for father love is what drives every single thing in your life, and nothing can satisfy it except the heavenly father. And that's what Paul went all over the world and told people 2,000 years ago. And it changed people in every community and it changed the world. The question is, 
Will it change you? Will you still defiantly try to fill your life with other things, thinking that career, family, money, success, reputation will satisfy you? They simply will not. So how was this received? Ready? Ready to finish this? Don't clap. Um, (laughs) Let me read verse 42 and following. So as they went out, okay, the synagogue service is over. The people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Did you hear that? Did you hear that response? (laughs) Love this passage. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Now the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to the Jews first, but since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, We are turning to the Gentiles because the Lord commanded, this is to the Jewish people, I made you to be a light to the Gentiles that you might bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed and the word of the Lord was spreading to the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of a high standing and the leading men of the city And they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust from their feet against them and went on to Iconium. And the disciples, that is the people in Antioch, were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. All right, so what response did they have? Hostility and what? Enthusiastic acceptance. That's always the case, right? So let's talk about that hostility. The Jews, when the gospel spread to the city, the Jewish community became angry. They taught against it. They slandered Paul. They rallied influential men and the women in the city. And ultimately, they drove them out. Why? What does the scripture say? When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with what? They were jealous. For one, this is not a Jewish town. They're in a Gentile area. They're in Turkey, right? This is a long way from the Holy Land, right? So the Jewish synagogue has, has never grown. It's not growing. It's, it's, it doesn't attract any converts or anything like that. And in all their uh, efforts there, there was no growth. But suddenly, look at this huge crowd responding to the message of, uh, of Paul, right? They're jealous at, uh, at that kind of receptivity in the community. What else are they jealous about? What else are they mad about? The idea that God would love Gentiles, right? Um, that God would consider Gentiles to be their equal. Every Jewish man woke up in the morning and the first words he said were a prayer. God, I thank you that I am not a woman. That was what they prayed. I thank you that I am not a woman. I thank you that I am not a Gentile. And I thank you that I am not a slave. And here, the Gentiles seem to be favored by God. And they're offended. They're offended that God would extend his grace and love to anybody. 
Um, and the, the Jews had clearly, they had superior morality to these Gentiles, but God would give his salvation to the most vile, the most pagan. This was insulting to them. It means that the gospel demands one thing of people. Need. Desperate need. The recognition that they've got nothing. They have no righteousness in God's eyes. That's why the Bible says, Jesus said, it'd be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. Why? Why? Why would it be so hard for someone materially prosperous to go to heaven? Because the one thing you need is what? Need. And if you're rich, you don't have any. You live a life in self-dependence. When what you need to be converted is dependence, utter dependence. Empty-handed I come to you, God. I bring nothing. And the Jews brought the idea, we are the favored of God. We've got more righteous than anyone else. And can I tell you about what our world's biggest problem is today? It's self-righteousness. Our, our biggest problem in our world isn't the sexual immorality in our world. Bigger problem than that is the self-righteousness of people who consider themselves better than those who are sexually immoral. Self-righteousness is, um, is, is what particularly sullies the church, right? Um, so there we have it. Um, gosh, the problem in our world is this sneering self-righteousness, right? You go on social media, it's all there is, right? If you're, um, just take politically, right? People who, who would say um, of these um, Republicans and Trump supporters and, and MAGA and all of that, they just sneer uh, with disdain. And people would look over at the Democrats, these liberals, these Nancy Pelosiites, and they sneer with self. You know what I find nobody going online doing? Saying, God, I'm a sinner. I, I need you more than anybody in this world. I've identified the biggest problem in the world, and it's not a Republican, it's not a Democrat, it's me. God have mercy on me. That's how Christians posture as they enter the world. It's me. I'm the big sinner. And the Jews wouldn't stand for it, so they drove the apostles out of town, Right? And there's a lot of people in this world who would love to drive the, 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 this message underground and out of town. Republicans hate this message. Democrats hate this message. Right and left hate this message. Got it? Christianity is something completely different. And you'll find a hard time having a home in either one of those other groups. Do you know that? Um, self-righteousness. Herman Melville had it right. God have mercy on us all. Right? Presbyterian and pagan alike, we are all cracked about the heads and badly in need of mending. So, how did the Gentiles receive this? They received it with joy. It says they hungered for more. When, they, when the synagogue service was over, they begged, stay, teach us more. They stopped the preacher before he could get out of the room. Hallelujah! Right? Beautiful stuff. Couldn't even get to the narthex. Come back, preach again, don't stop. The whole city was there the next Sabbath day. The Bible says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, right, for righteousness. Let's make that our prayer, right? God, make me hungry for you, hungry for your word. I'll never forget, one of the first times we ever did healing as a part of our service, being anointed for healing, and I wondered if anybody would come up because it was kind of 
uncomfortable to present yourself as needing that. And, 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 and in two services, maybe a thousand people here that weekend in our church, maybe 15 people came forward uh, of members of our church to be, and I was so proud of our church. People wanted Jesus, they'd come up, they'd get anointed for, for healing, for whatever, and they're so proud of our church. But that same weekend, I just noticed something. On Saturday night, we had the PATH, homeless people here. You know the PATH ministry in our community, homeless center? They used to come every Saturday night, they all sat over here. And I noticed that weekend, there were probably 24 people from the PATH, 20 of them came forward. Almost every single one of them came forward. If you're handing out Jesus, I'm coming, right? Because they have what? Nothing, nothing. God, make us hungry, hungry for Jesus. And you know what Paul says to these people are so hungry? I love this verse, it's verse 43, it's up on the wall. After the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout followers, converts, you know, followed them. And this is what they said to them, continue in the grace of God. They urged them, they implored them, continue in the grace of God. That's the job of the preacher to you every week who belong to Jesus, continue in this. Continue in the grace of God, keep drinking it in. Keep, keep believing it, right? Um, some of the saddest moments of being a pastor. I remember a woman coming to our church far from Jesus. She drank it all in. She was growing. She was signing up for everything. She put her kids in the school. And then guess who came against her? Happens all the time. Her husband. Suddenly he was wild about planning family activities every Sunday. At that time we didn't have Saturday night church. Every Sunday. We gotta go do this, gotta do that. He created every obstacle he possibly could. He demanded the kids come out of the school. He, he fought her at every turn. And eventually, she moved away. Some of you here might be discouraged. Continue in the grace of God. Continue in the grace of God. Do you know? You know that the opposition to your continuing in the grace of God isn't really somebody outside of you. It's something inside of you. It's that voice inside of you that tells, that, that uh, filled with self-hatred, right? Self-loathing. Do you know how grievous it is to hate somebody else's child? How grievous is that, to hate a child? How grievous do you think it is to hate a child of God? Would you, be, would, would, you, would you have the guts to hate one of God's children? Well, that's what you do when you hate yourself, right? How dare you, right? How grievous to hate a child that God has never stops loving. Continue in his grace. Believe it. Believe his grace. His affection for you. You are the beloved. Is there anything that he wouldn't do for you? He gave his own son. Believe it. Continue in the grace of God, brothers and sisters. If you're discouraged, continue in the grace of God. And the last thing I'd just say is we need to live in this world with a, a, uh, a resilient joy. These new Christians in Antioch, they lost their teachers. The city was stirred up against them, but they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. 
right? Can you stand in the midst of our world with, with, with joy, resilient joy, non-anxious, whatever's happening in the world? Sometimes I think that people in our country, if they took all the guns away, I wonder how Christians would respond if the government took all the guns away. Or how would, how would Christians respond if, if Trump was reelected? Would you have whatever, picture the worst scenario you can imagine. Would you have joy? Resilient joy. God's people live in a decaying world and they walk through the darkness with joy. Elie Wiesel said in Auschwitz, he never got over the fact that when they marched the Christians to the gas chambers, they sang hymns on the way. Do you, on the day the mechanic calls and says, it's $3,500 to fix your car. You know, supply chain. Do you have joy? Do you have resilient joy? When it's $87 to fill your car. (laughs) Resilient joy. Do you have resilient joy? That's what they had. You can have it too. That's what happens when the gospel, you know, I think of a kid learning to ride a bike, right? Remember dad, this is a good Father's Day image. You put your kid on that bike and they were so afraid, I'm gonna fall, no, 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 I got you, I got you, I got you. And then they get going down the street and they're pedaling and they cannot believe they're up, they're starting to get cocky, right, and everything. What they don't know is dad's running as hard as he can down the street, holding onto the bike, keeping it up so they don't crash, right? They don't see that, that's behind them. Guess what? Whatever's happening in your life, he's got the back of the bike. He'll never let you go. That's what happens when the gospel comes to town. Changes everything. How will you respond? Let's pray. Father, it's, uh, every one of us has been hard-hearted towards you in so many ways. Only you can cause our hearts to grow soft. There are people here this day that need to grow soft again to you. Some of us have been Christians a long time. Some of us have never crossed the line and said yes to you. But Lord, today, may we be filled like those disciples were, having heard this glorious, beautiful love of a God who's always known them and pursued them, that they were filled with joy. May it be true in this room, in these homes, these marriages, in the hearts of these dads right in this place today. Hear our prayer. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.